Okay, quiet on the set, everybody. Stand by. Roll camera. Speed. Roll sound. Speed. Market. And cue talent. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Art Aldridge, and this episode I have not been looking forward to. Today is June 16th, 2021. As I'm prepping and preparing for this big job, I knew in my head that this is the weekend leading into Father's Day. It's the first Father's Day I will have without my father, which is a little weird for me to say out loud, and I've been thinking about it Last Father's Day, on Father's Day, in the midst of the COVID pandemic, we had uh, my parents over for a small gathering, COVID, you know, protocols fully intact. I decided at just the last minute to interview my dad for the podcast. It was really fortunate that I did so because when I look back now, that was really the last time he was fully healthy and alert the decline would start to happen slowly because of covid we didn't really see it or know what was coming on but he had trouble with his heart and it was failing and i don't know if it was his stubbornness and not telling the doctors or he just was you know ignoring their advice we're not really sure how it got to the point where it got but it did and he passed in april and I went back and I listened to the podcast and realized that it was really uh, fortunate of me to have recorded that. I got to say some things to him that I probably hadn't said before, and it was not like on the deathbed kind of thing, which was nice, and I know that he heard it and recognized it and appreciated it, so... I will add one anecdote before I play the interview that I recorded last year with my father on Father's Day. The house that I live in now used to belong to my parents. And this office that I'm in, my my home office, and where I record the TWIP episodes most weeks, was the actual first editing room that my dad and I built back in the 80s to handle the first editing job, which was a uh, not-for-profit that you'll hear about if you listen to the interview that I did from last year, which I'm going to replay in a minute. But anyway, this office was uh, built by my dad. I mean, he did everything himself, never really called in professionals to do things for, for better or for worse. But in this little anecdote I will share with you, that my dad did all of the electrical work, wiring up outlets. We had outlets at the bottom of the walls for the equipment on the desk, and then we had a monitor bank near the ceiling, and we put up outlets for that. We had lots of outlets, lots of breakers that he did all of the electrical work for himself. And after uh, they moved out and my wife and I moved in when we got married, I redid the office in terms of the uh, sheetrock and things like that, but the electrical, for the most part, stayed intact. (laughs) I was hooking up a firewire cable between a Amiga video toaster computer on one side of the room 
and on the other side of the room plugged into a separate outlet uh, was a beta deck, a PVW2800 beta deck, and it had an S-Video input. And I was taking basically an S-Video cable from the video toaster to output some animation into the beta deck. And when I touched the tip of the S-Video cable to the S-Video input, it didn't even get into the deck. It basically just touched the front of the connector. There was literally a flame that shot through the cable, burned my hand, shorted out the beta deck, caused you know a small fire, if you will, put out very quickly, but the burnt electronic smell stunk. And, you know, that was my dad's electrical work. You know, the ground was not uh, throughout the house, I guess. So there was a ground lift between these two circuits and it caused a short circuit and about a $3,000 repair to my uh, new beta deck at the time. So just a fun little memory I have of my dad. And now I will replay you the interview I did with him last year on Father's Day. And I'll see you soon with some new episodes. I'm your host, Art Aldridge. And joining me is another Art Aldridge, my father. Older, wiser, and much more handsome. Welcome to This Week in Production. Well, thank you, Arthur. I'm glad to be your guest. Now, this is Father's Day Sunday, and uh, we're having dinner and a little, you know, Father's Day get-together. You might hear my wife in the background scraping dishes and breaking glass and things that, you know, are not explainable to the podcast audience. But in case you hear some strange sounds, that's what it is. But I thought it would be fun to go back and look at your sort of youth and um, young career and where you are now. And as they say, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So being, you know, that I'm quite high on the genius level, I'm sure that, you know. Well, it has to come from someplace. It has to come from somewhere. Mm -hmm. And maybe I'll track down my parents sometime. <laughs> anyway, at what point in your childhood did you realize that you had a creative side I got my inspiration, actually, from listening to the radio. Radio was the big medium when I was growing up uh, in the late 30s and during the war. And I was fascinated by radio. And that was my career goal. I wanted to go into radio. Uh, Edward R. Murrow was uh, a role model uh, for me. His delivery, uh, the pauses, uh, the the style. I said, gee, I would love to do that. <clears throat> so when I got into junior high school, I started producing in-house radio programs and in high school. And then at NYU, where I went to classes, I was uh, news director of the college radio station. And we won a great number of awards. Lucky Strike was our big sponsor at that time. And they were trying to promote campus smoking. Uh, and we would win awards. We had more equipment that we had won from Lucky Strike, I think, than many of the AM stations in New York City. We were constantly winning awards. And, wh and what kind of radio were you doing 
at NYU. Well, college radio. We had interview shows. We had we had DJs. We had uh, uh, we had all kinds of stuff. And I was the I was the news director. I would do live interviews. In fact, I broadcast for NYU the inaugural opening of Lincoln Center, and we went down with a remote kit, and uh, it was all leased telephone lines at the time, and we broadcast the opening of, of Lincoln Center. Uh, now, I don't know how many people actually listened to the radio station, but it doesn't matter because that's where we got our experience. Now, you went for a career in journalism and uh, newspapers, so what happened to the radio path that you were on? Well, when I got out of NYU, which was in the later 50s. I, um, 1850s. Uh, <laughs> no, 1950s. 1950s. I was in the class of 59, but I didn't finish college at NYU. I had three years there. And then I uh, went to work in the off-Broadway theater. And I did lighting and sound, and I was a tech director and a stage. So manager. why did why didn't you finish your last year? I uh, ran out of money. <laughs> so you decided to just go and start working. I would start working, and I'd catch up with college later. And and the first available job was off Broadway it lighting was, tech. They needed tech people. Lighting and sound were much more complicated in the fifties than they they are now. This was uh, pre digital. It was the analog age. And to do lighting, you had to be able to calculate resistance and load up your dimmers properly. It was a, uh, it was a science as well as an art. And tech technical people always worked. Actors uh, were always hungry and starving. Tech people worked and got paid. And I was very, I was very happy with that. And then I got into um, NYU's television workshop in the early 60s, and I did work with experimental TV at that time. And I was waiting for a job. I had been promised a job at ABC TV as a production assistant. And I knew a producer that I had worked with off-Broadway, and he said, we'll call you. Well, you've heard that one before. But don't call us, we'll call you. So um, I waited and I waited, and I finally figured, look, I got nothing to lose. Three months have gone by. I called him, and the message I got was, oh, he no longer works here. So <laughs> there was my golden entree to television, uh, and I needed a job. <laughs> so um, this uh, weekly newspaper up in Westchester uh, was looking for production people, and it was, it was a want-ad newspaper, actually. There was no writing involved. It was a want-ad newspaper, and I, uh, I took want-ads, and then I learned to do offset lithography, and, I, and within two years, I was general manager, uh, and I did, we did all the in-house printing. Uh, but I wanted to write. I wanted to get into local journalism. So I left that job, and I took a job with a newspaper called the Eastchester Record. And that's where I met my, uh, my wife. And we've been married uh, 52 years. But I met her at that, at, at that custom art newspaper. And then when I was working for the Eastchester Record. And I, I had a week uh, 
to put out a newspaper, which I had never done, by the way. And uh, if I could do it in a week, I could keep the job. I did it in a week, and uh, I've been working with weekly newspapers ever since, and that was in the uh, early 60s. So you you wanted a career in radio, but you got sidetracked a bit with theater, and then in in need of cash, you took a job in newspapers, and then you never really looked back from that. Now, I remember as a child, and I don't know how old I was, but you had a... Um, a workshop, if you will, in the basement of our house. And I remember going down there and you had uh, a chop splicer <laughs> and a bunch of film gang reels and synchronizers. What was that all about? As part of uh, this job as the, you know, <laughs> as the editor of this Eastchester record, Eastchester was uh, celebrating its tricentennial. And they wanted somebody to produce a documentary film. I said, sure, why not? Now, I had never done a documentary film, but didn't didn't stop me. So they rented a Bolex uh, for me, 16-millimeter Bolex with, uh, with a turret with three lenses in it. And they said, go to it. So I went out and documented the history of Eastchester, and then I came how I came home, and I would do the splicing and the editing, which was extremely tedious to splice film, uh, extremely tedious, uh, and produce the documentary. They may even still have it. I would I would love to go and find that and see if <laughs> that's available. I will. I would. I would too. Now the only unfortunate part was that we couldn't afford to do it as a sound film. So I had to create the narration and the sound effects on tape, <laughs> open reel tape, and then tried to synchronize it with the film. Uh, luckily, there was no synchronized dialogue, uh, but uh, it worked uh, well enough, at least, that they were very happy with the with the result. Uh, but um, I, I mean, I remember, I remember those images the visuals the the touch the the smell of the cement for some reason and i don't know if that was a a trigger for where i would you know wind up going in terms of my career but later as i was you know growing up i remember you brought me home i cuz you were sort of a notorious junk collector you used to go i remember you used to go out on the trash night and just search through garbage which was, you know, a little embarrassing, I think, as a kid. But <laughs> I remember you brought me home a Panasonic black and white open reel VHS <clears throat> recording system, half inch. Right. We had actually, I had raised my standards by then. I didn't pick that up at the curb. We had gone to a garage sale run by Cooperative Extension. And uh, they were offering uh, this uh, for $25. Uh, it was obsolete, of course. Open reel videotape, uh, totally obsolete. But I bought it. I figured I'd take it home and I'd fool with it. And I figured that if you were interested in it, you could experiment. And if it didn't work or uh, you didn't like it, I'd sell it again. That's all. It was an experiment. So I've never been afraid to experiment. No, I, I, I will say that you were 
always willing to attempt to do something, even if you had no formal skills or any skills <laughs> for that matter, including dishwashers yes, and appliances. Exa exactly. I do. I do remember that as a child. I think the fire department had to come once because you set the carpet on fire. No, I set the insulation on fire. I was installing a washing machine and soldering plumbing. Right. And, and uh, the insulation went up, uh, right. but they, uh, I put it out before they even came. Right. I disconnected one of the water hoses from the washing machine and sprayed it. So it got disconnected. Now, when I got to high school, I, I remember it was like one of my first days. They were literally just getting boxes off a truck for a TV studio that they were going to build. And I remember my English teacher was in charge of that studio. His name was Doug Austin. And he, uh, I was walking by and I asked a question like, oh, what is all this stuff? And he said, oh, we're building a TV studio. Why don't you uh, help us? And I think that for some reason caught my interest. And shortly after that, you gave me an opportunity to help you produce a video for a, like a paying video for one of your newspaper advertisers. We, right. Uh, because look, a TV uh, was, was, a, was a, for, for the local level, TV was an open field at that time. Everybody wanted to get into TV. Cable had just, had just set up. It was primitive, the cable operation. It was more like community antenna uh, rather than a sophisticated cable. But everybody was hungry for TV, and it was a wide open field, like many new fields are, like the internet was at one time. So if it doesn't matter. When, when, when you go to produce something, nobody says, gee, have you ever done this before? All they want, they want the finished product. We did the same thing for Camp Venture, if you remember. Well, that's, that's what I'm referring to. Yeah. So that job was for this not-for-profit, mm -hmm. and it was like a fundraising-type yeah. video. But the way that your your diabolical brain worked was you said, okay, we need a third of the money up front, and we took that money and we bought cameras. <laughs> and then we just started shooting a bunch of things. And, yeah. and you know, it was very basic. It was, it was Panasonic Industrial VHS. It was cassette-based at that point, but it was separate recorders, and cameras and they weren't really great in low light and i mean i just remember we went around and shot a bunch of things sometimes we had to go back and shoot again because for some reason it didn't come out mm -hmm. or we didn't get the audio right and then once we had a bunch of footage you said well we need some more money the second installment and then we went and bought some editing equipment right. Right, time-based corrector, A, A and B role. Well, way way before we even got to that, because that was when I was really getting into the technology mm -hmm. of the video, and I was really understanding, you know, what was possible. And at first, we just all we could afford was a cuts-only VHS right. system. Insert editing, I and so that. no dissolves, no yeah. special effects. But there was a company, and I'm trying to remember the name now. I I can't think of it uh, at the moment, but they there was a company, SciTech right. was the company, and they were making a unit that could 
time-based correct two sources in one box. So instead of needing a time-based corrector for each device, this device was one unit that could synchronize two devices. All right, I remember And that. we bought that with a little Ambico switcher <laughs> that did very rudimentary fades right. and dissolves and cuts. And, and, a, and an Ambico title maker yes, also. Yes, which was a camera, a black yeah, and white yes. camera, and you would put you know, reverse type under it and you would key it. Right, very primitive. Very primitive, and that was, and so we edited it and we completed the job. And I think it was probably, I, I have a copy of it somewhere and it's pretty bad in terms of technology, but what was really good was the storytelling. Right. And that really came from your ability to write, and I think that was why the whole thing didn't blow up. Well, they were very happy with it. In fact, they're still using it. And uh, one of the, I managed to get uh, permission to go into Rockland State Hospital, which had been closed, because my memories of Rockland State Hospital was one of a horror show with bunks lined up in rows and your belongings, if you were a patient, would go in a basket and they would hoist it up to the ceiling and lock it. And it still had the names. Right. And we, we should we should say that that this particular organization was doing, ser you know, services for mentally right, challenged right. people. And the, the state of mental care in the 60s and the 50s and even part of the 70s was probably pretty horrible. And so you were able to get us into this closed facility that had some right. really horrifying visuals. Right. Well, I, I remember that, uh, that production very, very well. Uh, because despite the fact that the equipment was crude, uh, but it was what people were using. Industrial video, it's what they were using. Despite the fact that it was crude, the story was coherent. And we used images to tell the story. And uh, that's why I was so pleased with it. And uh, Venture is still using it, by the way. Well, I think that really sort of showed me that, wow, I could, I could actually do this and maybe make a living at it. And really from that point forward, I, I really never had a doubt in my mind about what I wanted to do as a career. I mean, did you, as a parent, I mean, were you thinking at all about, like, this could be a career for my child? Or was it just something that you said, let's, you know, let him play with it? No, what I tried to do <clears throat> was to uh, expose you and uh, your sister, actually, to any number of different possibilities, uh, not knowing which one you would choose if any, as a career path, but at least expose you to it because I knew people in college who couldn't decide what they wanted to do. Uh, they were in the wrong major. They wasted time. They wasted credits. They got out. They didn't like their, their, the path they had chosen. They had to go study something else. So I tried to encourage this exploration early because that's how I grew up. I grew up exploring, and uh, I I never looked back. I th I I was very happy with uh, the life that I have made. I've done uh, newspapers. I've done radio. I've done TV. Uh, I've taught. I've had a very rewarding life because I'm not afraid to step up and say yes. I'll do that, 
and then I'll figure out how to do it. I mean, I remember going, you used to take me to your office on Saturdays. And I remember going and there were some parts that were like great. Like I, for some reason I enjoyed lunch. <laughs> uh, you had a very good Italian deli near you or your office. And I do remember like, oh, I couldn't wait for lunch. But then there was also, you know, like the weird, like I remember being in the dark room mm. and you would be processing, you know, photographs and the smell of the chemicals and the gray lab timer <laughs> with the glow in the dark, yeah. you know, uh, numbers. And I remember crushing my, my finger on a can of Varn mm. press wash <laughs> and the smell of ink. Like yeah. I, those are things that I will never forget. And I remember just also the strange cast of characters that worked for you. <laughs> and I think maybe that had something to do with me not wanting to go <laughs> into print and, and journalism, or maybe not, I don't know. But I do remember that. And I think that was a very good part of you know my childhood was mm -hmm. seeing those things and those experiences. And like you say, learning, oh, that interests me or that wow that's mm -hmm. terrible like why would i want to smell these chemicals all well, day well that's that, that, that that's a good choice i remember you're saying uh to, to me uh well you know i don't want to go into publishing because a i get my hands dirty and b there's no money in it and you're absolutely correct and there's still no money in it and i'm still publishing a newspaper uh, I like the smell of the ink. I don't smell it anymore because we don't have the presses in the building anymore. We print uh, 100 miles away, send the files digitally and get it, get it back the next day. I miss that. I miss this. The there is something, there is some romance about the sound of the presses and uh -huh. the smell of it. I will definitely remember that for as long as I live. Yeah. I also remember that you, you were not afraid of technology might not have been cutting edge technology, but I remember we always had things at home, like computers. Like I, I think we had, you know, one of the first laser printers. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a huge HP yeah, yeah. device, but I remember like, you know, you brought it home for some reason and we're trying to figure out how to use it for your newspapers or something. But, you know, you always had equipment and things that were, you know, I guess at the time cutting edge, so I don't really know where they were, but there was never um, something that if you, you know, wanted to experiment with it, you, you would. I would, I did, and I still do. Um, I can remember when programming my VCR was an adventure, uh, but uh, I think we've moved, uh, we've moved on for there, from there. Now, I'm, I'm 82 and going on 83, and I uh, still like my Mac computers. I like to uh, repair them. I'm not afraid to try new applications and get, get into the, um, the operating systems as far as I can and fix them and become self-sufficient with the technology. I'm not afraid of technology. Yeah, I would, I would say that that was something still to this day that you like to tinker with. Probably now probably gets you into more trouble than, it, than good, but... <laughs> Um, I, I guess it does keep you going to some degree. When was the last time I called you for Mac help? <laughs> yes. I, I do my own. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, the, the thing about Macs, um, you had a friend 
Lenny, Lenny Shapiro, who who is no longer with us, but he he was very into the computer scene, and I remember you actually uh, introduced me to him, and I got into the computer bulletin boards and a little bit of hacking, and but he had set you up somehow with a system of Macintosh emulation on Amiga hardware, right? Called the M Plant, right? And I remember you were actually trying to run your newspapers. Right. In a day when Macintoshes were $10,000, yep. you could put together an Amiga for about $2,000 <laughs> and run the same software. Well, 2000 was a lot because I would run all over the countryside picking up used Amigas wherever I could. I remember going down to Philadelphia once because some guy was selling an Amiga, you know, for a couple hundred dollars. But we set up we set up the whole newspaper using this second third hand equipment, and we were publishing three newspapers with these, and um, we were able to get away from traditional typesetting methods and venture into desktop publishing for low investment, low buck, and it worked just as well as the expensive stuff. Yeah, and I, I learned about the toaster the Amiga and the Video Toaster from those experiences. And the Video Toaster was actually something that I was able to turn into, you know, a business That's right. venture because we were using the Video Toaster to do 3D animation. And we were we had, you know, computers in New York City. We were doing frame-by-frame uh, -frame animation out to one-inch tape. And, you know, that all stemmed from, you know, being introduced to the computer mm -hmm. system uh, from your work and, and, uh, from Lenny. So yeah, that was, that was all, you know, very, I mean, as a childhood, I mean, you did a pretty good job. I didn't oh. know it at the time. <laughs> I think at the time I might've been a little angry. I know I, I was angry cause we had the same name <laughs> and there would always be confusion if the phone rang and they would ask for art, and it, I didn't know if it was for me or for you, and that was always a little confusing. And then mail was the same way. Mm -hmm. But as I got older, I realized that that was, you know, not really uh, something that I should be angry about. Now, you know, no, you could be angry about something else if you like. It's yes, okay. Yes, yes. But but like I said, as I got older, and now I have kids of my own, I I try to adopt some of the same parenting techniques, trying to expose my kids to different things. Not You didn't have a very heavy hand, so to speak. I mean, on occasion, I do remember raising your anger level a few degrees, but it wasn't too often. And uh, that was probably because you didn't know about most of the stuff that I got into trouble with. But um, I think in the end, it turned out pretty well. I think it turned out great. So as we wrap this up, I, I want to say cheers to you as a father. Thank you. I don't know how many times I've told you that, but you did a pretty good job. Well, thank you very the proof much. proof is in the pudding. And <laughs> I must say I exceeded much of the uh, expectations. You have it far exceeded. And, uh, you know, that's one of the hopes of a parent is that their children will do better than they did. And you certainly have. You've taken uh, your own ability, you've taken your background, and you've moved ahead. You've moved into your own realm.
and you've been independent for most of your life. And that is freedom is so precious because most people spend their lives basically in some sort of a job that they either loathe or despise or do because they have to uh, at the mercy of fate and they become very dissatisfied. Uh, Thoreau once said that uh, most men live lives of quiet desperation. Well, I was determined that I wouldn't do that. And you didn't do it either. I did definitely learn that lesson from you. And, and um, that was a good lesson to learn. And I've, I've tried to, you know, embrace that and, and, and also to encourage others to look for that same sort of, you know, freedom and, and happiness, because you don't always get all the the other benefits of you know maybe a regular job but what you gain is sanity <laughs> absolutely and you're your own person and you go home at night and you're satisfied with what you do yeah. and you've done something worthwhile and creative and you've made a lasting contribution uh to make to improve the world that, that you live in and that's what i like to do and that's what you've done i think it's great one one last question so if you had pursued that radio career, what was the dream job in radio that you had hoped for? I wanted to produce documentaries. In fact, I did <clears throat> uh, in New Rochelle for a radio station named WVOX. Uh, there was a hospital strike at Lawrence Hospital in Bronxville. Uh, local 1199 uh, of the Hospital Workers Union went out on strike and it was real it was a real um clash because the workers who were miserably underpaid were mostly african-american and hispanic and the hospital was white anglo-saxon protestant establishment and the workers not only felt they were being underpaid but undervalued for the work that they they did so um, I spoke to the, uh, the president of the radio station. I said, look, this is a story, and um, I want to do a documentary. I want to get both sides, and I did. Now, I had never produced a documentary. I had never, I had very seldom even edited tape, quarter-inch recording tape, but I managed to do this. I put, had tape hanging up all over the apartment. This is before you were born with tags on it as to what it was and how long it ran. And I put the documentary together and they aired it. They aired it a number of times. So uh, I got that experience. So I would have done radio documentaries, but by that time, radio as the dominant medium was finished. It was AM radio was languishing and it was TV. TV took off uh, explosively. Uh, in the 50s and early early 60s. So I simply had to find a new career path. Or well, again, thank you. Happy Father's Day. <laughs> yes. And cheers. You too. Do you have something to say? Drop me an email at thisweekinproduction at gmail.com. Or even better, call our new TWIP voice mailbox and leave us a message. 601-564-TWIP. That's 601 601- Five six four eight nine four seven. Also, a reminder that This Week in Production is available on all major podcast platforms, including Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play. 
so please subscribe to get every episode. Lastly, if you like what you hear, would you mind giving me a rating or a review? I'd appreciate that. Okay, that's a wrap on This Week in Production. Thanks for listening.